Let's dive into the scriptures together. Uh, Today we're in Psalm chapter 73, reading verses 2 through 3, and then 23 through 26. Let's read this together. The psalmist says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the wicked. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Praise God. God is good, amen. And God is faithful. I'm so glad that God has gathered all of us here together this beautiful Sunday morning. Well, my name is John Vick, as Pastor Mark shared earlier. I'm one of the campus pastors at One Church, and and we're currently in part four of this series titled A Matter of Life and Death, right? And what we're doing in this series is we're talking about the seven deadly sins. So last week, Pastor Brandon came up here and preached about the deadly sin of lust, and and I was very grateful and very thankful that he was the pastor to uh, to preach that sermon. And and my first sermon here didn't have to be about lust. So so thank you, Brandon, for for doing such an amazing job last week with that. However, the sermons in this series uh, about the seven deadly sins, they've been so much more than just about sin, right? No one wants just to come to church and and talk about sin all morning. So we've also been talking about the seven corresponding virtues, right? The pretty much the seven opposites of the seven deadly sins. So so whenever we talked about pride, we also talked about humility. Whenever we talked about anger, we also talked about patience. Whenever we talked about lust last week, we also talked about chastity. Well, today we're going to be talking about and tackling a sin that many of us have, that many of us struggle with, that's so common in our culture today, yet we can do such a good job of hiding it. Such a good job of just covering it up. So so we're going to be talking about the sin of envy this morning. The sin of envy. And, and let's just make sure we're all on the same page in knowing what envy is. I, I really like Friar David Joseph Honeycutt's definition of envy. He says, envy is not only wanting something that someone else has, it's hating them for having it. Uh, in your bulletins, there's a little uh, slide, a little slip with your sermon notes. You're welcome to pull those out and follow along, fill out the blanks if you'd like to throughout this sermon. But anyways, envy is not only wanting something that someone else has, it's hating them for having it. So not only do we wish we had our coworkers' higher salary, we dislike them or hate them even for having it. And not only do we wish we had our neighbor's larger house, but we dislike them or hate them even for having it. And friends, that is a dangerous, 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 dangerous game. See, being envious and and having these hateful feelings towards our neighbor, that is the opposite of what Jesus calls us to, right? We are to be people who love our neighbors despite how big their house is, despite how many cars they have in their driveway. We are to be people who love our coworkers even if we think that we were the ones that deserve that raise and not them. Uh, every year, whenever the weather starts getting kind of cold outside around November, December, there are these things that start popping up all over the place. Uh, do you know what they are? Here's a picture of them, right? I, I feel like these little uh, mobile skating rinks just start popping up all over the place. And, and I'm sure we have some here this morning that love the skating rinks. You know, you can just go to town on the skating rinks. You know, you're doing all the flips and the tricks and spinning backwards and, you know, going on one foot and just blazing past everybody else. And, and you're just having the time of your life. Meanwhile, 
I've only taken three steps onto the ice, and I've managed to fall 19 different times. And, and of course, you know, there's the edge, and I'm just holding on to it for dear life. I, I'm, I'm not going to let that go, you know. And every once in a while, I think, I think, I think that I'm strong enough to let go of the edge. I'm not. As soon as I do it, I fall, then I stand up again, and I fall, and I stand up and fall, and then over and over and over again. You know, uh, I've kind of just come to the conclusion that our bodies were not made to walk on ice, right? We were made to walk on solid, firm ground. We were not made to walk on ice. You know, when I'm on the ice, I slip and I slide. Uh, I do not look like the happy people in that picture, you know. They are having a good time. I am not having a good time whenever I'm on the ice. And, and while that may not be a very pretty picture of me slipping and falling and slipping and falling on the ice, I think it's a perfect picture of what we look like whenever we hold on to envy. Whenever we take our eyes off of Jesus and place our eyes on the things of this world, whenever we lust after the things of this world, whether that's success, whether that's fame, whether that's a good name or, or maybe a degree from a prestigious university, whatever it may be, we are slipping and stumbling and falling whenever we hold on to envy. And I think the psalmist who wrote Psalm 73 would agree. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Friends, God doesn't want us to look like that. God doesn't want us slipping, slipping and stumbling all over the place. God doesn't want us to look like me on an ice skating rink. Right? That's not what God wants for us. But the reality is this. The way of envy is slippery beyond measure. The way of envy is slippery beyond measure. And I really wish that was the extent of it, though. You know, I wish I could come up here this morning and say, all right, envy is bad. Let's move on. Let's not be envious. But, but I just can't do that because I think envy is bigger than any of us originally realized. Uh, it's kind of like in those adventure movies like Star Wars and other movies like that where, you know, the heroes, the protagonists of the movie, they, they see some kind of creature or alien and they think, ah, that's, that's not that big. And, and they realize that they were only seeing the creature's mouth or the creature's eye and the creature was so much bigger than they originally thought. Well, well I think it's the same with envy. We don't think of it as a, a very big deal. But in all reality, it's one of the seven deadly sins. Envy is a lot bigger than we originally thought. Uh, envy uh, manifests itself in three different ways. The first way is jealousy, right? Jealousy and wanting what other people have. And, and what more perfect week to be talking about envy and how envy manifests itself in jealousy than spring break, the last day of spring break. I mean, it's impossible to, to check your Facebook feed and not see people posting about these amazing trips that they're going on, you know, going to Disney World and, and having the time of their lives, you know, laying out in the sun. And, and you know, it's kind of foggy and cloudy outside here today, but, but they're on the beaches, you know, just having the time of their life and, you know, posting about these amazing meals that they're having. And, and you're just like, well, what did I do today? I did laundry. I, uh... I went to work today. Maybe if you're a student, you're like, well, well, I got caught up in some homework today, but, but I think sometimes we can get jealous of other people and what they're doing over spring break. And, and I also really think that jealousy can kind of be downplayed in the church today, right? There's not a lot of sermons preached about jealousy today. Uh, there's not a great rush of, of people to go out and, and write books about what the Bible has to say about jealousy today. It's almost as if jealousy isn't a very big deal in the church today. But God has something different to say. Do you remember what the 10th commandment is? Uh, In it, God said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And I really think that if that commandment was written today, it it may say something a little more like this. You shall not covet your neighbor's larger house or the vehicles in their driveway or the clothes that they wear or the vacations that they go on over spring break. Jealousy, it may not seem like a big deal, but God did have something to say about it. So envy uh, manifests itself, first of all, in jealousy. The second way envy manifests itself is in malice, right? In, In malice. And this really goes back to our original definition that we started with of envy, right? How it's not just wanting what other people have. It's not just desiring what people have, but it's being hateful or rude or mean spirited or short or annoying to people for having things that you don't have, but really, really, really want. And we read over and over and over again in the scriptures to rid ourselves of malice. So envy manifests itself in jealousy, in malice, and finally, in contempt, right? In contempt. And this can be seen in so many different ways, in, in belittling other people, in shaming other people, and, and not offering true care, and not offering true compassion, and in treating other, other people the way that you don't want to be treated, right? And making other people feel smaller or insignificant so that you can make yourself feel better and feel superior and higher than other people. So, so envy manifests itself in jealousy, malice, and contempt. And as you can probably imagine, these three things do not reflect the lifestyle of a radical Christ follower, which is what every single one of us here at Acts 2 are aiming to be. We want to be these radical, devoted followers of Christ, but those three manifestations of envy do not reflect the lifestyle of a radical Christ follower. But really just to lay it out all on the table, I think this is the biggest, most significant problem with envy. In envy, we are telling God, you are not enough. Right? Whenever we hold on to envy, we are telling God, you are not enough. Instead of fully delighting in God and in resting in God's love, we are saying, I cannot be content, I cannot be happy, I cannot be satisfied unless I have this, until this happens to me. And that is so problematic for us, it's problematic for the church, because we as members of Christ's body are to find our happiness and our contentment and our joy and our satisfaction in Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. So that's so problematic whenever we hold on to envy, whenever we we fix our eyes on the things of this world. It's very problematic. But it's not a new problem. In fact, it's a problem that people have been wrestling with for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And, and, you know, we read all throughout the Psalms of, of the different authors wrestling with envy, wrestling with contentment. And that's exactly what was taking place in, in Psalm 73 today, the, the Psalm that we've been diving into. I think it's so fascinating that scholars, the best people in the field of biblical studies, don't know when Psalm 73 was written. They just don't know. that They have no idea. They can't nail down a date for us. They don't know if it was during a, a good time or a bad time. A time of celebration and, and national pride or, or exile. A time of celebration or a time of mourning. They just don't know. Again, they, they can't nail down a date for us. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for us today. Because I think it really shows that envy knows no context, right? Envy and being jealous of other people's situation and success is something that people have always struggled with. Envy doesn't care about your personal context, right? Envy doesn't care about your personal context. It's not new. It's not unique to us living in Edmond, Oklahoma in 2019, 
right? People have been struggling with this for a really, really long time. No one is exempt from envy. And to be completely honest with you all, I think at times some of the most envious people can be pastors. Yes, wishing they had the people who go to the church down the road. Or have you ever heard those pastors pray those beautiful, beautiful, beautiful prayers? And you're just like, can I ever pray a prayer like that? Can I pray a prayer that beautiful or, or preach a sermon that good, right? So envy is something that so many of us struggle with. In fact, last week, I had to be very careful because Brandon came up and preached such a graceful and solid sermon over lust. That kind of sounds like a, an oxymoron, I think, a graceful, solid sermon over, over lust. But, but I had to be very careful that I wasn't being envious. Rather, I was being thankful that Brandon is a part of the kingdom of God and that Brandon is using his gifts to build up the kingdom of God. So if envy is our problem, though, if this is the the vice that we're talking about this morning, then what is Christ's answer for us? Uh, What is the solution that God gives us in his word? And and really the answer is contentedness. It's being content, right? Uh, Friar David Joseph Honeycutt also says that contentedness is the culmination of desire. Created in God's image and trusting in God's care, we are called to be content with our station in life. Each moment is provided for our spiritual benefit and salvation. And I really, really, really like that definition of contentedness because it goes beyond saying that contentment or contentedness is just being happy, right? It's just being satisfied with with where you're at. See, I think this definition, it really strikes at the root of what Christian contentedness is, which is simply being content in God. Yesterday I had lunch with a good friend of mine, and at lunch my friend told me the story of his dad. And his dad has had an extremely difficult life. Uh, He was in a a fall that he actually broke his back in, and he's been in so many different auto accidents, and, and he was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. This person has many, many, many reasons uh, to be envious, right, and to covet what other people have, but he doesn't. My friend's dad is content in God, and my friend told me the story of him waking up so many times, sometimes at 3, 4, 5 in the morning, he he would go out into the kitchen, and he would see his dad at the kitchen table praying and reading the scriptures. That man, he finds his joy, he finds his contentment, he finds his delight, not in circumstances, not in envy, not in wanting what other people have in Jesus Christ as Lord. He is content and satisfied in God. And, and see that idea of being content and satisfied in God, it is central to so many of the biblical texts. Do you know what one of the most famous Bible passages of all time is? I mean, it's right up there with John 3.16. It's right up there with uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the beautiful love chapter that you hear read at, at so many different weddings. It's actually a psalm. And in this psalm, God is portrayed as a compassionate, caring shepherd. Do you know what psalm we're talking about? 23. Psalm 23. And, and I love the way that, that Psalm 23 begins. It begins in such a powerful, such a bold way, saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, some different translations say it a little bit different. Some say, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, or I lack no good thing. Another translation says, The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. And see, I think it just goes to show that the people of God are just sheep fully delighting in their shepherd. 
the people of God are just sheep fully delighting in their shepherd. See, we as Christians, we as the sheep, we as the church, we find everything that we need in God. We lack nothing. We lack no good thing. All of our deepest desires and longings, everything that we've been searching for, life, love, hope, healing, comfort, all of that is found in the shepherd who leads us by green pastures and leads us by calm waters. And it is this shepherd, our shepherd, God, who restores our soul. Uh, commenting upon Psalm 23, verse 1, J. Clinton McCann Jr. said this, In a consumer-oriented society, it is extremely difficult to hear the simple but radical message of Psalm 23, God is the only necessity of life. Now, we aren't going to see that in today's advertising, right? We aren't going to be driving down the road and, and see this giant billboard and says, You know, you don't really need this product. God is all you really need. You know, I've never seen a billboard like that, or I've never been, you know, watching TV and a commercial comes on and says, hey, this product really isn't necessary, but, but do you know what is necessary? God. You know, I've never seen a commercial like that. No, no, this consumer-oriented society that we live in, it pushes messages of necessity. I ran across a couple ads this week. The first one is this. Now, it's an ad for a certain brand of coffee, and I love coffee, right? Coffee is a part of my morning each and every single day. But I think this ad is a bit much because it's saying not only if you aren't drinking coffee, but if you aren't drinking this exact brand of coffee, you're missing out. You are missing something original, right? Your morning is incomplete if you are not drinking this type of coffee in the morning. I think I like this next ad a little bit more, though. Coca-Cola, open a Coke, open happiness are you having a bad day my friends are you kind of down in the dumps just buy a coke right because whenever you buy a coke you you aren't just buying a, a tasty beverage you are buying happiness you aren't just opening a bottle you are opening happiness much much more than just a coke so what do we do what do we do in a world that says enough is never enough what do we do? What do we do whenever we are told time and time and time again that we always must have more than and never ever less than? What do we do whenever we see people prospering and succeeding all at the expense of poor families, which happens a lot, sadly, in this world we live in today? What do we do whenever we work hard and humbly day after day after day for many years and, and see little progress? While the arrogant and the wicked, to use words from our psalm today, are out prospering. Well, Psalm 73 has a very simple answer. Go to the sanctuary. Run to God. Go to the sanctuary. Run to God. Again, here in, in Psalm 23, the psalmist is really wrestling with the, sex, with the success of, of bad people, of these people he sees as, as hurting others. And, and he says in verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, when I tried to, to make sense of all of this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. The psalmist became weary. The psalmist became overwhelmed. He probably went through many sleepless nights trying to figure out why these people were succeeding. And to be completely honest with you, I think it also goes to show that whenever we hold on to envy and whenever we try to do what the, the psalmist was doing at that time, we're just going to wear ourselves out. We're going to become tired and, and burdened and, and just overwhelmed. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. But I absolutely love the next line of this psalm. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. 
Church, things change whenever we come to the sanctuary. Our perspective changes whenever we come to the sanctuary. Our thoughts change whenever we come to the sanctuary. Our focus changes whenever we come to the sanctuary. See, in the sanctuary, in the presence of our good and glorious God, our envy diminishes, our envy vanishes whenever we come here on Sunday mornings and whenever we stand in God's presence and whenever we sing praises to God, we can't help but lose sight of our envy because it is here in the sanctuary, it is here in the presence of God that we have all we've ever wanted all we've ever needed all that we were created for hallelujah hallelujah some of my favorite words in all of scripture actually come from verse 25 in the psalm whom have i in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that i desire other than you friends whenever god becomes the only desire of our heart when we don't desire anything in this world, we don't long after anything in this world, then all of our envy disappears, vanishes. Uh, John Wesley was a man who lived in the 1700s. He he really started the Methodist movement that this church today is is a part of. And he said in, in a book he wrote, he said this, a Methodist is one who loves the Lord, his God, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. God is the joy of his heart and the desire of his soul, which is continually crying, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth whom I desire besides thee. Sound familiar? My God and my all, thou art the strength of my heart. And my portion forever, he is therefore happy in God, yea, always happy. I hope that we would look like that. That person that that John Wesley was describing. And it's really my hope and my prayer that each of us would would go forth from this day and go forth each day fully delighting in God, being truly happy in God, and being content in God. So let's consider these our action steps for this week. Thank God for the talented people around you. Thank God for the people around you who God has gifted, whom God has skilled, and given these different talents. Right? If you're at work, thank God for the talented people around you, that you aren't trying to compete with them, that you aren't trying to outdo them, but give thanks to God that they are a part of your company and not someone else's company. Uh, or if you're in a group project, thank, at, at school, you know, working on something, uh, thank God for the smart, for the intelligent, for the wise people in your group. And especially, let, let this happen in the church. Let this take place in the sanctuary. Let's encourage one another. Let's lift one another up in prayer. Let's pray for one another. Because we are one body. We are one church. No pun intended. But we are one church. We are, are one body. So let's give thanks to God for each other. And let's give thanks to God for the gifts that God has given each of us. Uh, this morning on my way to church, I was thanking God for what he was doing at different churches, right? And I think that's, that's really important. I mean, I, I think it's important to know that God isn't just at work here in this church, in this sanctuary, but, but God is at work in so many different places right now. So let's give thanks to God for what he is doing and the people around us and the churches around us. Let's thank God for the talented people around us. The second action step, reflect on how blessed you are. Reflect on how blessed you are. Friends, we are blessed with so, so much. I think just being here today, Freely worshiping our risen Savior in the sanctuary is a blessing that that so many people don't know and don't have. In our houses, our clean clothes, the food that we eat, our our education, all those are blessings that we can so easily, easily forget to thank God for. So this week, let's reflect on how blessed each of us really are. The third and final action step is this, and I think this is the greatest blessing of all. Spend time with God. 
right? Spend time with God this week because time spent in the amazing presence of God changes things. And whatever that may look like for you, I didn't want it to be super specific. Just spend time with God this week, whether that's reading scripture or setting aside time to listen to worship music alone or, or setting aside time for prayer. Just spend time with God this week because it's so hard to be envious and jealous when we know that God has given us his only son so that we might know God, so that we might have this personal relationship with God, that we might experience true love, authentic forgiveness, and that we might have a hope that is stronger than the grave itself. And so with that being said, I want to close with this scripture from Romans chapter 8. He, talking about God, he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, Will he not with him also give us everything else? May each of us here today know that we are loved by God. Think about that. The creator of the universe loves you. Loves you with an immeasurable, eternal love. And may knowing that allow us to go forth in contentment, uh, fully delighting in God, in a world that is filled with so much envy and jealousy. Let's pray. God, you are our shepherd. You are the one who restores us. You are the one who refreshes our soul. You are the one who leads us in green pastures. You are the one who leads us by still waters. So God, we give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks for Jesus, how he showed us what love is, how he laid down his life for us, and God, how in response we are called to to lay down our lives in love for our brothers and sisters. God, thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for the joy of knowing you. God, nothing compares to the surpassing greatness of of worshiping you and having this personal relationship with you. God, we love you and we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.